Welcome to How My Country Works with your host, Stephen O'Shea, the podcast that rummages around the hoarder's basement of the global political system and pulls out the insightful gems hidden way at the back. Each episode, we'll be working alphabetically through different countries' politics so you can show off to your friends and maybe gain a slightly better understanding of just how those countries work. Next up, the largest country in Oceania, with a population of 26 million and functioning as a parliamentary democracy, is Australia. On the 6th of September 2017, Australia broke the world record for the longest period of continuous economic growth, as measured by growth in the economy in two consecutive quarters. For 104 quarters, or 26 years for the non-economists, the country has dramatically improved the economic outlook of its citizens and seen off global financial crashes with barely a shudder. However, the same year also marked the 50th anniversary of the 1967 referendum, the date from which Indigenous Australians would actually be counted in the census, and the Close the Gap report that year on Indigenous Australian affairs showed how much some Australians had not felt the same levels of economic growth as others. Aboriginals still fall significantly far behind white Australians when it comes to incarceration, life expectancy and employment, as well as many other metrics. In order to dive a little bit deeper into this and the historical and political climate of Indigenous Australians, I'll be speaking to the lecturer Jacqueline Troy at the University of Sydney. But in order to get a better understanding of Australia as a whole and its history, I'm first joined on the show by Stuart Jackson, chair of his department and also of the University of Sydney. Stuart, Thanks for joining me on the show. Sure. Very happy to. Now, many people associate the start of Australian history with the landing by the English explorer Captain Cook in 1770. But can you chat to us a bit about what the country was like before that? The original inhabitants, Aboriginal Australians, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders, they arrived, well, anywhere between, when you start with 45,000, when you can say, well, that's we know that there were definitely 100% sure 45,000 years ago. Wow. 45,000 years ago. So we go, okay, people have been here a long time. Yeah, I'll say. But what was Indigenous Australian society like back then? So we are talking about a group of people who were uh, living um, within the environment. They were fishing. They were trading. You have all the elements of, if you like, a basic pre-city civilization. Right. So it's a lot more advanced than I think a lot of people imagine. But how many people were there actually living in the country at that point? Maybe 250,000, maybe a million. No one actually knows how many were here before the settlement actually started. Wow, so a decent amount of people then. But then you start getting European settlers coming over, right? They're driven from Europe by new opportunities, colonization, and of course, imprisonment. Um, How do they fare? It wasn't easy. Uh, You come here... Certainly the first and second fleets, um, it was pretty hard. Uh, you were literally creating things from scratch. It's a, a bit like, no, I wouldn't say like Survivor, but there was a certain element of Survivor to it because you had to build the houses, you had to create the roads. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen that on Survivor before. So it's really rough going at first, but they start to slowly build up these settlements and push more and more into the country from bases in Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, etc. But these settlements are quite separate at the beginning, right? Why is this? Because you're in Perth, you're two weeks sailing away from Adelaide, you know, three from Melbourne and four from Sydney. 
gives you some sense of distance between the different places. So you do your own thing in Perth, you know, in the in the the Swan River Colony. There's no land connection. There's no sense of connection between them. Right. So the different settlements developed quite separately, and each started building up their own colonial parliaments with a fair degree of autonomy, which kind of still exists to this day in terms of state government. But then how do these places actually come together to eventually form a country? Well, they start to think, you know, we're a big space. We need to start getting together. The impetus is actually coming out of a number of colonial um, politicians, particularly Henry Parks. He's one of the drivers of a a number of constitutional conventions that occurred in the 1890s. Um, These constitutional conventions brought people together from the different colonies to try and hammer out, if we were going to be a country, how would we govern it? Keeping in mind that these were self-governing colonies who got into the habit of being self-governing and who liked self-governing themselves and didn't necessarily want to hand off you know, power to somebody else. I mean, they were getting it back, as it were, from uh, London. So they don't want to hand it off too quickly. So that's how you end up with a federal government or Commonwealth and the different states. And this officially takes place on the 1st of January 1901, or Federation Day. And then you eventually get the capital, which is Canberra, established as a kind of compromise in between Melbourne and Sydney. Funnily, it wasn't actually allowed to be even more than 100 miles from Sydney. That's right. But then it's really the First World War that Australia steps out onto the world stage in a way, right? Why does it join the fight, as it were? But we are still part of the British Empire. So when the British Empire calls in the First World War, people salute and march off. Many people volunteered. They ended up um, in the trenches in uh, the Somme, etc. But they also ended up in Gallipoli. Gallipoli is, of course, that famous defeat against the Ottoman Empire, which is now marked in Australia with Anzac Day. But Australia sees it as a sort of, this is the blooding of the country. But then how does the country emerge after the war? Australia, though, was only slowly recovering from the Depression, right? So it really was 10 years of recovery from the Depression. And we're just getting out of the Depression and there's a freaking great war. And we send soldiers off to fight wars again. But... At least this time, we're also building the munitions. We're building the so we're building the guns. Right? We're building the ships. We're building the planes. So the government spends money. We have munitions. We can do this. Right. So there's not a huge population for the country to contribute to the war effort, though they are actively working with the Americans against the Japanese in the South Pacific. But it also turns into a bit of a manufacturing hub during the conflict, and of course, is on the winning side. And compared to the rest of Europe, it's in fairly good shape. So in the grand scheme of things, it sounds like they come out of the war not looking too bad. What's the post-war period like for the country? So for us, it's a case of, well, we got sheep and wool and sugar and you know, all these primary products. We can start selling it again. And we got some ships left. So let's start trading. And we have this, again, long, very successful period of growth, trade and growth, which takes us all the way through to the 70s. Wow, that's a huge period of growth and prosperity for the country. And it's also further driven by immigration from much of Southern Europe, right? But how does this fit with the white Australian immigration policy that had been in place? This starts to undo the white Australia policy, which was predicated on white English people. Well, these people aren't white English. They don't speak the same language. They don't have the same religion all too often. They're broadly Christian, but they're not the same. The policy starts to break down. Right, of course. 
But then in the 1970s, the country starts to stutter slightly. Economically, there are some setbacks and it also gets involved with the Americans in Vietnam. But in the 1980s, the government liberalizes the economy and removes tariffs and really unleashes an economy that has never kind of looked back. Since, and even before that, the national government tends to swing between the two main parties of Labour and the Liberals. But the latter is actually on the right and more conservative. Can you just explain that name? They were relatively liberal in terms of their policies towards free trade. Well, not free trade, but to trade generally. Right. So you have these two parties jockeying for the leadership and there are others like the Nationals, the Greens and Independents, and they all compete for both a lower house of representatives and a Senate, similar to the US system, though with a monarch as head of state. But not everyone benefits equally from this period and system. So I'm keen to bring in my next guest, Professor Jackie Troy, to talk more around the impact of Indigenous Australia. Jackie, welcome to the show. Now, just to rewind slightly, we've already chatted to Stuart about how there was a large Indigenous population here already in Australia when the Europeans arrived. But what were those initial interactions like? The early um, engagements, I think, um, and the historical record written down by the British, of course, supports this idea of a sort of initial engagement that was wary if but friendly. And British really needed the help of the local Sydney people who knew what you could eat, what was safe to eat, what wasn't safe. It was pretty obvious from very early on that growing anything in this sandy soil of the Sydney area was not going to work well. Wow, so they were actually kind of welcoming at first. And then, you know, um, Aboriginal people began trading with the British. They were very interested in the, the I guess, the gifts that were offered to them. Uh, metal fish hooks were prized. Tomahawks, metal tomahawks were very prized. So the Aboriginal people in Sydney were fascinated by all this kit that the British arrived with. Yeah, I bet. But there must have been some conflict as well, right? From the start, the interactions were fraught. I mean, the British came to stay permanently. Aboriginal people don't do that. We don't go to someone else's country and just stay. And did the relationship just kind of go downhill from there? It didn't go downhill. It just never started properly. It never, it was, you know, the British came to conciliate and tell people that they were there and this is what was going to be. And Australia, you know, as it became known as, it was New South Wales for a long time, would be under the British legal system. Right, of course. So there was just no recognition of the Aboriginal people and the land rights they had in the country as the traditional landowners of Australia. And also in the process have more or less erased us as as people who are key players in our own country. So how does the relationship progress into the 20th century? Well, in some ways, the 18th and 19th centuries were better period for Aboriginal people in Australia in terms of the colonial experience while there were there was a lot of outright war and terrible atrocities committed on our peoples but it was the 20th century where you could see that um, white Australia really got fed up with um, us what do you mean and decided that the only way to fix this problem uh, that we were was to assimilate us really like super actively so in the 20th century um, the ultimate solution was found, and that was to remove anybody who looked like me. Fortunately, I wasn't removed, neither was my mother. Um, but I have family members where, you know, 14 children in one family, for example, were removed. 14? That is 
shocking and often had to be given up by their families, not just forcibly removed, but surrendered because they were given no choice. You either surrender your children or we're going to come and take them. And they were put into homes, they were adopted out. And the idea was that they go into non-Aboriginal families. That's horrendous. And for listeners who don't know, this is what's become known as the Stolen Generation. It was a policy by the Australian government that ran until 1973 and removed over 100,000 children from their parents. That must have done incredible damage. Huge damage was done and people were removed never to find their families again or if they did only very late in life and often when their immediate parents had, had died. Wow. And alongside Indigenous Australians having to adapt to Western systems like the Parks Department dictating land restrictions, this has all had a lasting impact on their livelihoods today. One of the most profound of which is that children of Indigenous Australians are still the most likely to be taken into social care, an almost devastating mirroring of the stolen generation. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Jackie. Yeah, you too. Now, I just want to finish off the show by actually going back to Stuart to talk through the day, event or festival that he thinks of in regards to Australia. Stuart? Oddly enough, it's January the 26th, which some people call Australia Day and some people call Invasion Day. So you have two sides to a coin. It's actually a very political day. Didn't used to be when I was growing up, but then you didn't hear lots of other voices. And now that's a really interesting day. I actually think that's perfect, as I think it really captures the duality of the country that I think we've explored with both Jackie and yourself. Thanks so much, Stuart. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end the show. Thanks so much to my guests, Stuart Jackson and Jacqueline Troy. Join us next time where we'll be exploring the Central European nation of Austria. And as always, please do rate us on your podcast app and recommend us to any friends that have a hankering for political knowledge. Follow us on Instagram at HowMyCountryWorks for extra insights and facts. And there you can message us around anything else you'd like to know about Australia or any other country. See you next time. And remember to keep asking how my country works.